Lord, we agree with those prayers and do leave them in uh, your hands, knowing that you're more concerned about our lives than the little things that disturb or the little things that sometimes cloud our thinking and distract or whatever the case may be. But we want to rest in you, trusting that you are not only a sovereign God, but you care far more about us than uh, we could care for one another. So we just praise you this morning and do desire that your word encourage us, strengthen us, give us a foundation to be able to be lights in the dark world. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's get into the book of Romans. That's the reason we're here, right? Right. This morning I will hopefully, Lord willing, complete our portion that deals with condemnation. The initial section that Paul introduces at the beginning of the book of Romans, and he puts it front and center because our tendency, obviously, is to resist that idea. Even as believers, there's something in our nature that resists accepting who we really are. And Paul has to lay it out in some detail, and this is actually one of the longest sections in the book of Romans. So we'll complete that this morning, which is uh, verses 18 through 20. And when I return from next week's trip, we'll get back into the more positive portion of the book of Romans. The answer or the solution to the dilemma that all mankind finds themselves in. And we'll talk about this very, very important Doctrine of justification by faith and by faith alone. So that's what we will head towards. Written to the the church at Rome. So this last portion, somewhat the last subsection, I guess you could call it, begins in verse 9 all the way through verse 20, where Paul is giving his kind of final summation of the case that he's presented, where he is basically announcing the guilt of all of mankind. We have a summary indictment, verse 9, and then the scriptural proof, 10 through 18. And in verse 18, where we'll pick up this morning, we have kind of the fundamental and basic cause of everything. And it takes us back into chapter 1, because that was what he somewhat, in different words, concludes concerning all of humanity So it's a little bit of a summary, as I think all of 18 through 20 actually is. So the cause of that, so we'll focus on that. Just a reminder of the analogy I've been using of a courtroom. Paul is using legal language. He's building a legal case. And in this, this is ultimate legality, if you will, ultimate justice. This is justice in relationship to God. And just as a criminal stands in a position of guilt and therefore condemnation, Paul is building the case, this is the case of all of humanity, not in a human court, but in a ultimate courtroom. So he builds the case with an opening statement in verse 18. And then he presents the evidence, using the analogy, the evidence against all of humanity, but more specifically the Gentiles, 19 to 32, chapter 1. 
He continues building a case to include others, including primarily the community of Jews, the Jewish people. You could consider all of chapter 2 doing that. Jews would have objections, so they would present them in a court. Paul anticipates that, so he deals with those arguments, the arguments of the defense, in the first eight verses of chapter 3, and then in verse 9, as I said, is the final charge. So he says, I have already charged that both Jew and Gentile stand guilty, essentially, before a holy God. And in his summary, he's going to cite the law. Here are the violations of the law. So he gives the law, and ultimately the law is the law, Mosaic law in terms of the nation of Israel. So he quotes primarily passages out of the Psalms, but there's also a passage from Isaiah as well. And that's in verses 10 through 18. And now we are in the closing statement. So he's going to wrap up the case. That's verses 19 through 20. And we'll, we didn't quite finish 18 there, so we'll pick up in verse 18. But we're looking basically at the closing statement. So he's going to lay the case on the, what is it, the bench, you might say. And expecting the outcome, the court decision. And the court decision is that mankind stands condemned. There's no hope for mankind. That's court decision. That's the conclusion. We've been talking about this idea, a theological concept called total depravity, and most people don't understand what it is, so we've gone into some detail to explain it, and I tried to describe it in a few phrases here. Starting with the Westminster Catechism, it basically says depravity or total depravity Man is wholly inclined. In other words, our nature is such that our inclination is primarily to evil continually. And I've been continuously using the illustration of children. You see it in them. Not that they're axe murderers or thieves, but you see that resistance and the tendency towards badness. Uh, you don't teach them the word no, it's just as automatic, it's part of our nature. So man is wholly inclined to evil. God has also built into culture restraints, and apart from those restraints, we would go wholeheartedly in that direction. So these restraints, in general, restrain us from working out our ultimate inclination. One of the main ones, obviously, is government. The law, the, what do you call it, the uh, law within a state or a county. Civil. Civil, that's the word I was looking for. Or not so civil. (laughs) (laughs) That restrains, God has designed parents to restrain that that is in children, to teach them. And uh, he's also given us conscience to make us realize that there's just not something right with slapping somebody in the face when we want to do that. But that's our inclination. Another description is we are totally unable to do anything spiritually good. And there's lots of passages that indicate that. We can do lots of things. We can do acts of kindness, but they're all temporal. We don't have any spiritual ultimate effect. And certainly we have no ability to do anything 
that pleases God or to gain a standing or a merit before God. And another phrase that kind of sums up total depravity is we are totally affected by sin, every aspect of our nature. And this is the central passage that brings that out. In fact, within this passage, you almost have every one of these elements. And that's what we've been going through. Total depravity affects our spirit. So total depravity means that our spirits are affected. Paul uses another descriptive term. He calls it that we are dead spiritually in our trespasses and sins. A dead person or creature cannot do anything to please God, cannot do anything spiritually. So our spirits are affected. We also saw that our hearts are affected. Jeremiah has probably the most explicit description, 17.9. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can understand them? That's depravity. Our minds or our intellect is affected. That's verse 11. And also in Ephesians 4, 17 through 18, are passages that indicate the intellect is darkened. Same context, we're encouraged to renew our thinking. The believer that has access to the Word of God can renew and uh, develop a new way of thinking in terms of a biblical worldview. And the point I was making with this is that all of these areas, these major areas of our being, are affected not only by sin, but that is what depravity means. All of them are affected, and as a result, in our intellect, we don't think the thoughts of God. In our hearts, we are hardened to spiritual things. It's hard to get into the Word of God. It's hard to respond. It's hard to pray, even. So our hearts are hardened. Our volition is affected. That's illustrated also in 3.11 and verse 12. We go a different path. Paul uses the analogy of making choices or decisions. And we all go astray, is what he says in that passage. James talks about that as well. I gave you several other parallel passages. Number five, our communication, our speech. He uses the imagery of what comes from our throat, affects our tongue, our lips, our mouth, kind of from the inward to the outward. And I gave you several from uh, Proverbs that tell us that uh, basically our words can kill. James says that our words can be like a fire that sets a whole forest aflame. So that passage is very explicit, using a lot of imagery as well. Our emotions are affected. We see that illustrated in verse 14, and then some other passages as well. We have to be encouraged away from wrong responses of emotions, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. Seventh, our whole body is affected. Now, the passage indirectly speaks of that just because it lists body parts. Remember, throat, tongue, lips, mouth, feet, eyes. All of those are in that passage there. And if that's not clear enough, uh, there's passages like First John 2 that speaks of the flesh and the natural aspect of who we are. So... Every aspect is affected. That's what we mean by total depravity. And ultimately, our bodies are in the process of dying. The only solution to any of this, we're going to see beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, 
The only solution is receiving Jesus Christ and solely what he has accomplished, not anything that we accomplish because we cannot accomplish anything that would please God. And then number eight, all of that works out such that the things that we do, all of our actions are tainted by sin as well. Even those so-called kind acts, oftentimes they're motivated by self-interest and not in terms of what God might have for us. What's not included, or at least I didn't observe it in the passage, and there are several places where it speaks of our consciences as well. So you could include number nine, conscience. Conscience is defiled, specific passage. So that's what we've been talking about. So verse 18 I see it as a very brief. He doesn't have to go into detail. He's kind of belabored the point already. So in verse 18, he simply states, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, in our thinking, in our actions, in our emotions, in our communication, God is left out. Does that make sense? There's no fear. And remember, the Proverbs makes the big point... What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord, if you do a study on that in Scripture, and there's several passages that indicate that. You could even translate that uh, a reverence, or a respect, or a realization that that's the most important aspect of life, and that's missing in our natural state. Mary Lee. The word that they use for fear, is that phobos? Phobos, yep. It might be in the New Testament. And correspondingly in the Old Testament as well. And so does that mean then that if we have a phobia, um, is that maybe using a, a wrong word? No, no. Or because no, it's just uh, because we are tainted by sin, that natural thing that God has put within us a fear and a respect for God is now twisted such that it's destructive even, all right? It's just like God has built within us, let's see, I'm trying to think of, the ability to respond with anger. God is a wrathful God. He responds in anger, but there's no sin. When we respond, because we can respond wrongly in anger, then it's distorted and as a result of the effects of sin. But there's even a commandment, Ephesians 4, be angry. That's imperative mood. There is such a thing as anger, as the next part of the verse says, but what? Do not sin. Don't let the sun go down before you deal with your anger. There are proper ways and there are proper situations where you need to express anger. A parent that does not do that with children is making a huge mistake. But a wrong response is to abuse the child. A right response is to discipline in a way that it teaches. That's a proper response of anger. And it can be spoken, it can be expressed. Similarly, a fear has this aspect to it of a realization that God could at any moment do whatever he wanted and he could wipe me from the face of the earth and he'd be perfectly just to do it. So there's an awesomeness, a sense of there's power there that I don't want to mess with. I respect it. I am in awe of it. That's the fear of the Lord. 
By nature, we do not have that. It's not when we come into a realization that there is a God, first of all. He is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is sovereign. He is majestic. He is all of these things. Wow, that God loves me. I have a respect for that. I'm just noting as I was thinking of this, thinking that, okay, kind of like electricity, except that we use electricity, but we cannot use God. So that's even right there a, a, little, a distortion in thinking. Well, it's a good illustration, but the illustration breaks down, is what you're Very saying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you have to have a respect for electricity. Good illustration. If you don't, electricity is going to... It's going to take care of you. Similarly, that's what God would desire from us. Now, the unbeliever has every reason to have a fear of being wiped out and a real dread and fear that can be destructive because he has no basis because he is unrighteous. He does not have a standing. So that's the fear of the Lord. And what he's saying, there is no fear of God. Before the eyes of the unbeliever, it's not until they begin to realize their real situation, and that's the purpose of this passage, is to give us a picture of what mankind is all about. So that's the reason, that's the cause of no fear of God. Therefore, we don't make a change. Therefore, there is no understanding. Therefore, we don't seek after God, as it says in uh, verse 11. Therefore, we take the path away from God, verse 14, and on and on and on in all of the other passages. So that's kind of the underlying. It's just a small little phrase, but it's full of insight, and it's uh, a huge thing in terms of where we're at spiritually until Jesus wipes us clean and until he gives us a new nature. But our tendency, even as believers is to live just like the world. Our tendency is to go about and forget about spiritual things, neglecting the awesome word of God. We have an inspired and inerrant communication from God, and we don't spend time in it. That's from that old nature. We need a healthy dose of the fear of God, respect, and a mindfulness uh, what does this word say? You know, this is awesome. It gives us a solution to that situation. I want to learn more about it, that motivation. All right? So verse 18. And just to kind of cap it out, here's kind of a summary slide of all of the passages. You've seen all this, so don't even try to copy it. But basically, Romans 10 is based on probably a summation of 14, 1 through 3. Verse 11 is based or comes out of a partial quote of Psalm 14.2, verse 12. Also that same psalm, except in that case, a closer quotation of verse 3. And then uh, the psalm ends in verse 3, exactly what verse 10 says. That's why I think it's a summation. There's not one, not even one. There's a universal aspect about this idea of depravity. 13 comes from two passages, Psalm 5.9 and Psalm 140, verse 3. 14 out of Psalm 10.7. 15, 16, and 17 from Isaiah 59, 7, and 8. And now verse 18 comes out of Psalm 36.1.
In fact, it could come from a, a variety of several places, but probably the closest is Psalm 36, 1. Make sense? That's his proof. That's his Old Testament proof. In other words, this is the violation of the law. Step by step, passage by passage, the conclusion goes to verse 19. So his summary conclusion, 19 and 20, he's going to summarize it in uh, several phrases in there, starting with verse 19. And the way I've summarized the first part of that is there's a superintending the law superintends over primarily a particular group of people. So we'll talk about that as we look at that verse, superintending. I'm probably stretching the wording there to alliterate. You'll notice that from the outline sheet there. So 19 and 20, it's one sentence. Those together, the two verses. Now we know that whatever the law says, comma, it speaks to those who aren't under the law, comma, so that, there's a so that statement there. What does that tell you? There's a purpose behind the law, and that's the emphasis that I'm going to, I'm drawing out here. We're going to look at what are the purposes of the law? Because most unbelievers have the concept that I have to do something to please God. We don't have the concept that Anything I do does not bring any merit whatsoever before God. We don't have that as unbelievers. We don't understand it until we realize that there is, there's no hope and there's nothing we can do and that God has done it all. So there is a purpose. The law commands us to do things, or at least the Old Testament and those that are under it. That's what this passage is talking about. So that... Every mouth may be closed. That's one of the purposes of the law, is to leave us speechless. In a court of law, it's to say you have no case. You can't offer any excuse, any case. You are speechless before the judge. I have nothing to say, judge. I have no defense whatsoever. That's one of the purposes of the law. I'm going to get to that. Yeah, I'm getting there. Yeah. yeah. I know I'm slow and it takes me a long time to get there, but... We're slow. Most of my friends are also Yeah, okay. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. There's kind of a distinction in there. We'll bring that out. Semicolon. Not a period there, at least in the New American Standard. Because by the works of the law, very important phrase there. We're going to look at it carefully. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Semicolon. There's nothing you can do. There's no obedience that you can perform to gain any merit before God. That's going to be the subject of the next major section. So he's already kind of transitioning. How do you become justified in his eyes? That's a legal term. We're going to define it. That's a courtroom term. I'm going to bring out the idea there are two aspects to it. Well, I'll get to that. <laughs> because Connie's getting impatient already. So. <laughs> Semicolon. Four. Here's another kind of... Uh, Concluding statement, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's another purpose of the law, 
to reveal to us who we really are so that now we may see, well, I can't meet that standard. I don't measure up. The next step is Jesus did everything that is required before God to justify us. We could use the courtroom term to acquit us. We're guilty, but we're going to get acquitted. Not on the basis of us. We will be acquitted before God in the Supreme Supreme Court on the basis of someone else. Someone else took on that prison term that we deserve. Someone else paid the penalty for what we deserve. We deserve to go to the cross eternally. Someone else went to the cross, paid the penalty, and the next section is going to show that on the basis of that, if we accept that simply by faith, we are justified or acquitted so there's kind of a, and uh, set free. Difference here because you know we have lots of terms he bought me, you know, and it's like, well, who did he buy me from? You know, all this. Yes. Stuff. But when you talk about being acquitted, it sets it into a different arena where you can understand that. Well, there's no way I can work off that penalty. No, you know? it's like no. Ten hundred year sentences, you know. I'm never going to get out. Well, it's eternal. It's eternal. An eternal sentence to to damnation, and so when you're acquitted, then it changes it from being. I mean, it still is a price, and we understand that, but it puts it kind of in a different arena. That's why the death of Christ is so important. He took on the sins of the world and paid an eternal consequence. Jesus experienced all the hell that we deserve. It's I, We can't conceive of it, but that's the essence of what happened there. And just so that you just, uh, I'm going to stress it over and over again. Justification has two aspects, Mary Lee. The sin is wiped clean. That's forgiveness of sin. In other words, we don't have a record before God anymore of sin. Past, present, and future. When we receive that forgiveness from Christ. There's a positive as well. That's the negative. Forgiveness of sins is the negative. The positive, we are given righteousness. We are given a, a righteous standing before God. It doesn't make us righteous. That's the growth process of the believer. That's chapters 6 through 8. How do we grow in righteousness? We are declared and legally righteous before a holy God. That's a declaration. That's the ultimate acquittal of the court case. So that's our state before God. That's our standing before God. Yes, our state or our standing. Yes, exactly. So it's like kids in your family. So even though your kids may just be on a tooth and dis disobeying in every way they can, it does not wipe them from being in your family. That's right. It does not wipe you from desiring to see change in them. It does not wipe I mean, you want to see change in them, yeah. But it doesn't wipe them out. Exactly. Very good. That's a good analogy as well. The Bible uses that, by the way. So, that's the sentence. We haven't gotten into it yet. <laughs> Connie's still on the edge of her seat. So, what's the purpose of the law? Here's where I'm going to answer Connie's question. A first purpose of the law is it's Israel's constitution. 
Israel's constitution. And do we have time? Uh, somebody look up Exodus 19, 5 and 6. I think I spent more time in just looking at the sentence itself. Yes, now remember chapter 19 is set at Mount Sinai where God is introducing his law to the people. It's a covenant. It's a constitution. Israel is under the Mosaic Covenant. Israel is under a constitution. It's going to regulate every aspect of their their life, and we have kind of a statement to that effect in those two verses. Now, therefore, if indeed obey voice and keep my covenant, then... There's the covenant that requires obedience. And you shall be a special treasure to you above all, for all the earth is mine. And you shall need to be a king of priests, and these are the words to which you shall, words which you shall speak to the children. So here is a covenant that is going to govern you as a people, as a nation. Your part is to try to obey it. <laughs> In fact, that's the expectation. And we're going to find out at the end that part of it is to show that we can't do it, that we need something beyond the law. And Israel demonstrated that. Israel demonstrated they couldn't keep it. That's why they needed a Messiah. Okay? So it's Israel's constitution. That's what it means to be under the law. Are we under the law in that sense? Absolutely not. We are not under law, but under grace. So there are aspects of the Mosaic law, like Sabbath observance, like the dietary laws, like observance of the feasts. Those are commandments, but we're not under the law. Those are for the nation of Israel. That's their constitution. Thou shalt not murder. Uh, Is it okay to murder now? No. Because there are eternal and overriding moral aspects of the law that pertain to every culture at any time. And nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The one that is omitted is the Sabbath observance. (laughs) Sunday is not the Sabbath. All right? So, it's Israel's constitution. They are under the law. Uh, Just to kind of wake you up so that you uh, can continue. Okay? Another purpose is the silencing of sinners. The silencing of sinners... And I think in this context, when he talks about Israel or those under the law, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Israel is under the law. So that, one of the purposes here, so that every mouth may be closed. That's one of the purposes of the Mosaic law, is that no one can come before the judge and say, hey, I was obedient to the law, because if you violate one part of it, what? You're guilty of violating it all. So you mess up in one point, you're guilty. And you stand before the judge, and he's going to ask, did you violate one part of the law? Uh, I violated lots, lots of parts. Shut your mouth. You have no defense. So that every mouth may be closed. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, summarizes this very well. Until the mouth is shut, is stopped, and you are speechless, and have nothing to say, 
you put up arguments and produce all your righteousness, and what does Isaiah say? Then the law speaks, and it all withers to nothing, <coughs> becomes filthy rags. In Isaiah, those are menstrual rags. And dung, you know what that is, I don't have to elaborate on it, and you have nothing to say. It's a good summation of what verse 19 is telling us. So another purpose of the law, it reveals God's standards, and when we compare ourselves before a holy God, it leaves us speechless. We can't meet that standard. That's one of the purposes of the law. It also is to condemn the world. So the standing of the world, I'm using alliteration here, superintending over all Israel primarily, silencing of sinners, the standing of the world. All the world may become accountable to God. Now you might say, well, how does the Gentile fit in here? They're not under the law. I think an illustration might help. Bruce is real familiar with this (laughs) as an engineer. Most structural, well, probably all structural concrete should, and most is tested to make sure that it meets certain standards. And the way they test concrete or the highway or a column or a structure of some sort is they take these cylinders, these samples, and they test them in the lab. So these samples, these test samples, are representative of the whole. They represent the concrete that was poured, and they run a test. If that test fails on that sample, then that concrete is rejected because it doesn't meet the standards. And there have been some cases, right, Bruce? Do you remember any where concrete had to be ripped out? Now, sometimes they try to make some exceptions, that sort of thing, because it's very expensive, but that's the purpose of a sample. I think what the text is saying, Israel is like God's sample, and if those who have the most, they have the law, they're under the law, they had the most revelation, they've had the presence of God, they've had the blessing of God, they've had the, the, the standing of being the children of God, if they fail... How much more those that don't have all of that? So Israel is like a test sample, and it condemns all of the world. Does that make sense? So if the world were tested, in other words, if you could somehow test that concrete in place, if everything being equal, then the concrete would represent the same as the sample. If the sample fails, then all the rest fails as well. So the purpose of the law is to condemn the world. So well, when the world, hmm? I was going to say, actually, we have seen that because you just look and see what's going on all around us, and you can see that without God, all of these these samples are are failing under this the stress the of stresses the world. Of the world, exactly. Okay. So another purpose of the law is to condemn all, condemn all. Number four, verse twenty, three twenty. The law can't change the human heart. That's the shortcoming of the law. That's why he says in verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. In other words, you can't be justified. We don't have the ability to do anything 
that brings standing before God. That's depravity. He's already proven that point. He's already shown the violations of the law. Verses uh, 9 through 18. So, by, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The works produced by observing the law, that's the meaning of that little phrase. In other words, works produced by trying to obey the law. And if you read the Old Testament, there's so many things there that, I mean, it's hard to read. It's convicting, for one. It's just uh, impossible to keep. And mankind has demonstrated there's been no one that's been able to keep the law except Jesus. He's the only one that has perfectly obeyed the law. So that's what it means by the works of the law. It means that you cannot gain any righteousness by self-effort, by good works. You cannot gain any righteousness by self-effort. In other words, good works. So that's why we utterly need to trust only in Christ. And when you share the gospel, that's a major point that you want to want to make. 3.28, what does 3.28 say? Kind of a summation of the same thing. For we maintain, here's a kind of a eternal statement here, we maintain that a man is justified, how? By faith, faith alone, apart from the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no man can be justified. Who wants to look up Galatians 2.16? Well, for the sake of time, let me just... I've got them here. Let me just read them to you. 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, the same thing he's saying in Romans, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by faith faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. He reiterates it twice in verse 16. This was the major problem in the churches of Galatia. They were introducing legalism. It was by Judaizers. So he's reiterating it. Then he concludes, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Very much like what Paul is saying in Romans Galatians 3, 2, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? In other words, when you trusted in Jesus Christ, did you receive the Spirit because you deserve the Spirit by the works of the law? What's the answer? No. Or by simply hearing and now understanding and now you've trusted. 3, 5, so then. Does he who provides you with the Spirit, now he's speaking to the believer here, and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing by hearing with faith? Now, in this part of the book of Galatians, he's dealing with living the Christian life. We live the Christian life on the same basis as we receive salvation. It also is by faith. So both aspects pertain to trusting in in Christ. Verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Then he quotes from the law, For it is written, Cursed if everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So if you want to earn merit before God, Perfection is required. 
perfect obedience, not just in actions, but in motivation, in thought, every aspect. That's why we can't do it. That's why no one can be justified by works of the law. Okay? So, let's conclude this thing. Another thing that it does here, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's a purpose of the law, is to show us we can't obey the law and gain merit before God. We fail. And in fact, what the law is intended to do is to reveal that we are depraved. We don't meet the standards. So man is in a hopeless situation apart from Christ. Mankind stands condemned. That's the closing statement of this argument. Our last purpose of the law, it reveals sin. And he says something similar in 7.7. We don't have time to read it, but look ahead and jot it down, and you can see what Paul says there. It's in a slightly different context, but basically the law, the purpose of the law is to reveal sin. Now, if you want some other purposes that are not in this context, it also reveals God's nature, not only his standards, but his nature, that he's a holy God. It also was designed for Israel to maintain a relationship with God. Most of the law was designed to maintain a relationship with God, Deuteronomy 4.1. But this is for those that are under the law. That was the means by which they maintained. That's why they had to sacrifice. They violated the law, they had to bring a sacrifice. So the law specifies all of that to maintain that relationship. Okay? Next time, we'll begin in chapter 3, verse 21. The section runs through the end of chapter 5. We have completed condemnation. We will be going into justification. My hope is that we have had clarity to understand the situation of the unbeliever so that now when we share the gospel, we can give them an accurate picture of who they are. That's the bad news of the gospel. And now we want to get clarity on the good news. That's justification. How do they get a right standing before God? Our culture is in desperate need for the solution to sin. Solution to sin. Sin is total depravity. Next section is going to give that to us. Mary Lee. I was just going to comment that the only way you can be healed is to understand what the process. Yep. The only way you can be healed is if you allow the doctor to give you the cure. Well, you have to know what it is. You have to know it first, exactly. For other stuff, and then you are still sick as a dog. Yep. Using your analogy, this is Paul's diagnosis. We are in a hopeless condition, facing death, eternal death. But there is a solution, resurrection in Christ. Who wants to close abortion? Mary Lee. We thought that we actually come before you kind of stand having finished this because the diagnosis... Your mouth is shut. <laughs> the diagnosis is very severe. It is like walking into the doctor's office and saying, you have stage four and you need to put your hairs in order. But I give you praise and peace that you do have a cure for the terrible death that we face. That, that in you, if we follow your prescription, we will find life and joy that we have not experienced before. So, I pray, Father, that you will use this not only outwardly, but that you will use this in our own lives, that we will recognize those areas where 
we still are at stage four, and uh, that we will allow your Holy Spirit to come in to affect cleansing work that you have already provided for us. You recognize that diet and health and regimens and all the rest will not deal with this deadly disease. So we are grateful to know what our mission is, and we are more than grateful to realize that there is a cure for this. So we give you praise and peace. In Jesus, our Lord. Amen.